Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrapped SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And hi, I'm Rick. I'm the founder of Leg Up Ventures, which owns and operates software companies that empower underdogs. This week, we're going to talk about how to build a simple financial model. Here at Less Annoying CRM, we've got pretty simple finances, but as we grow, I always wonder, do we need something more advanced? Um, Rick has a lot more experience with that than I do, so we're going to get into it. Um, we, we just finished recording it, and I'm recording this intro after the fact, and I can say it's a big, big topic, and we don't get into the whole thing, but definitely we do end up with some takeaways that'll be helpful for me. Um, so before we do all that, uh, we're going to give a few updates on what we've been working on. Cool. So uh, what's up this week, Rick? Not much. I'm back to selling and pitching, um, which I haven't done in a while, and I forgot how uncomfortable it is to sell. You're selling your consulting services right now, or or your, your actual like product. I would say that this is across the board for all of my ventures. They a lot of my time the last six months was spent ideating, and I hate that word. Thinking. By the way. You do. <laughs> okay, well, I'll pick a different one. Uh, thinking uh, and strategizing versus acting. And when you've when your goal is to add users and to get people to understand what you've been thinking about for a long time, mm-hmm. you really have to be precise because you have a limited amount of t- attention span. And I really always struggle with it because I never want to feel like I'm bragging, and I don't. Mm. And I, I've always struggled talking about myself uh, in a in a salesy way, so it ends up me te- like talking way too much and telling stories versus or asking questions and never talking about myself. And so now I'm having to reprogram myself and remind myself I've got to start selling. And the best way I'm able to do this is script myself, come up with these thirty second pitches that I can just lean on and then have, have the conversation flow from there. But it's really, it's made me uncomfortable as I've started to trial and error on this because people look at me like I'm crazy. Yeah. It's hard. I don't think this is right for most people, but like one of my, I also just hate talking about myself in a salesy way. So what I do is I go kind of negative on the uh, alternative rather than positive on me, which I realize is kind of a toxic way to do it. But you know, it's like, oh, don't, don't is, aren't there all these annoying things about the world? We're not annoying. And then you spend all your time talking about them instead of yourself. <laughs> and I, that's my way too. Uh, yeah. And that's great, I think, for a longer sales cycle, like a marketing play where you're comfortable, like, hey, I'm going to play the long game. I'm going to tell the story, let that person come to a conclusion, which is mm-hmm. my type of selling. But in this situation, I, I've got, I don't really have a product or like a, a funnel to start filling. And I've got some time constraints on how I've got to get someone from, I've got to talk to a lot of people to get 20 beta users. I've got to talk to a lot of people to get to one consulting client. I've got to, you know, same thing with group current and, and the new community that we're, we're launching. And so I don't have the time to tell the story right now, the mm-hmm. way that I would like to, um, because I feel like it's more of a, a numbers game. I don't know. Feel free to talk me out of this, but that's, I feel like right now, early on, I need to get crisp and to the point to find the first, you know, the first bites. And then from there, start working in the word of mouth, uh, longer, longer uh, sales cycle approach. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Although as you're going from like high touch, long sales process to like talking to a lot of people, high volume, you're kind of moving from sales to marketing to some extent. So I wonder if you can fill some of that gap by just, for example, priming somebody with content or landing page or something so they get a little bit of that story in a more automated way before you start talking to them. The assumption you're making is that this is uh, over the internet. Um, This is all in person. So it's typically happening in a networking type environment uh, where you have literally 15, 20 seconds to get someone's attention before you go shake the next person's hand. And then, yeah. So uh, I think that totally, you're totally right for the internet approach. And I, I will take that approach and trans transition into that role. But for most of this, it's going to be, Hey, do you know anyone who boom? And then, Oh, great. Will you introduce me? And then again, again, and it's a question of being able to knock that out, uh, several, probably a hundred times in a, uh, you know, in a month. Yeah. Well, that's still good to, I mean, even if that's the case, when it does come time to write marketing copy, you'll have it all figured out and it'll be a piece of cake to write that. Exactly. It's the early part that stinks because you got to start with this crap that people look like, and they look at you like you're crazy, but you eventually iterate into something. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, uh, what the, else? Other thing I'm, the other thing I'm working on is business taxes. I've never actually, I've always had someone to do this and <laughs> I've never had to worry about it, which is interesting. And I'm, I'm I got to a place with 1099s this month where, where I just realized I'm not going to, I can't deal with this. This is too much. So I hired a CPA for the first time to handle this stuff. Dude, that's the best. That's the best money you can spend. Seriously. It's expensive, but at the end of the day, it's just to know, have the peace of mind, not to have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. And to, to know that it's 90, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I have some like, Hey, they didn't do it right. If it's wrong. Um, feels good. Yeah. We went through, I think, two accounting firms that we didn't like, and they really didn't understand us and stuff like that. And that was miserable. But as soon as we found the right fit, it's like, I just haven't thought about taxes in the last four years. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, so the other thing is, I'm, from our episode last week where we talked about what it means to start up to last, I, I pulled together a document. This is something I want to spend some time on uh, over the next, let's just call it 12 months while we have these conversations. It's really pertinent to me as I am early on with my, with my company. And I want to make sure that I set the foundation for, uh, some of the things we're talking about on here. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I just wanted to tell you, and I shared it with you. So if you ever want to add anything there, feel free to chime in, uh, via comments. It's a Google doc. And if anyone who's listening is interested in seeing that document and chiming in, I'm happy to share it. I've had some really interesting conversations with people who, uh, who've reached out as a result of that episode or who have mentioned it in passing that it got them thinking uh, about a different way. Uh, hmm. some, somewhere in between purely bootstrapping and uh, raise the venture venture funding route. And and it really spoke, I think a lot of people are, are bringing up this, you know, why am I starting a business is, is being the core to uh, <clears throat> what we're talking about here. Yeah. Why being pursuit of your own happiness? Yeah. And okay, cool. So speaking of which, um, if I can transition off that into my stuff, because I actually had a comment on that episode that I wanted to clarify a little bit. Uh, We talked in that episode about the question of like, is starting up to last maybe in addition to being a good thing to do for your lifestyle and all that, is it also in the end a good way to make a lot of money uh, if, if you're willing to be patient? I kind of 
last week I said no. Like it's it's a way to make enough money, but if your goal is to make the most money possible, it's it's not. Um, and I think I stand by that. But there's a piece as I was listening to it um, myself. There's a piece of nuance that I missed, which I think is um, if you want to increase your odds of making good money, starting up to last might be the right way to do it. If you want to increase the maximum amount of money you can make, it's probably not. Um, so it, it might be the right financial decision depending on your risk versus kind of upside calculus. Totally. And I, and I think when I was making that comment, I was more like focused on over the long, long term, does a company that is a startup to last company playing in a market with a venture back company win or lose mm-hmm. uh, uh, on a subjective basis, uh, let's just call it market share. Uh, I think maybe the startup to last company wins over the long term. Yeah, I, I'm still skeptical. If it, I'm skeptical, many of these companies will be hundred billion dollar companies. Um, I think none of them will be basically, but I think radical instead of a 95% failure rate, you might see a, you know, 40% failure rate. Um, and I always do this anytime a new person starts uh, at the company. I, I say, if I offered you two things, you can either have a guaranteed $100 billion, or sorry, you can either have a guaranteed uh, $100 million or a 1% chance at $100 billion. What do you take? Um, and everyone takes the guaranteed $100 million because who cares about that extra 900 however much? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm great million. at math. No, it's $100 billion, so it's not. Anyway. Uh, I thought you said $1 billion. One hundred billion versus one hundred million. The rational thing to do is to take the one percent chance at a hundred billion because your expected outcome is a billion. It's got a 10, 10 times greater expected outcome, but you're a person and you don't actually need that extra money. So you'd rather most. I don't know if you would. Most people pick easy choice: hundred million guaranteed. Yeah, I don't. I don't quite understand why the rational decision is. The 1% of a billion. Rational from like a mathematics standpoint that oh, okay. if you multiply the, the the expected outcome of 100 million is 100 million. The expected outcome of 1% chance of 100 billion is 1 billion. So your expected outcome is higher if you take the risk. But like there's more to it than that is kind of the point. This is why I have <laughs> I struggle with certain economic models that assume a pure, a pure rational yeah. human being in the sense that they're defining it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we don't need to, uh, you know, relitigate all of last episode. I just wanted to point out that I don't think I, I think I missed that point, and I just wanted to kind of correct it. No. I, yeah. I totally agree. And um, yeah, I'm with you. Thanks cool. for doing that. Yep. Um, and then a couple of uh, other updates from me. Got a lot going on right now, actually. Um, one is I, you know, I periodically do these work retreats out in Utah, and I'm uh, I'm cheating on you this time. I'm actually going to go to Boston this time and uh, go work with my brother, who's my co-founder. Uh, so taking a week in um, late January, early February, so pretty soon to go out there. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited about it, and we kind of work. On, we're both technical, but we work on very different things. Like he does DevOpsy infrastructure stuff, and I do product. But we're both gonna put stuff aside for a week and just do marketing projects together, which honestly has been neglected for like years. So it's long overdue. We're not going to solve all the problems in one week, but I think I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, other things going on. I, in our, yeah. I was going to say that you seem, you do seem busy. Yes. Well, yeah, this I, is I the only feel, time. I can feel it. 
<laughs> this is the only time I, we we write in a Google Doc these updates that we're going to give. And I deleted like four of them this week because I was like, I can't talk about all of this. Um, but that's good. I, I'm feeling, is it a good busy? It mostly is. I think there's been a little bit of craft building up where it's like I have these things I need to do, but they don't they don't really move the need. It's kind of like I hate. I hate brushing my teeth and clipping my nails because I'm like, I just end up back where I started. Uh, but it's that kind of a little bit of that kind of busy, but it's mostly moving forward and kind of kicking into gear. Like, like I said, we've been ignoring marketing for too long. It's busy, like getting back into that, but it's fun and it's good. You know, cool. Um, I'm also a little scattered right now. So sorry if I'm rambling. <laughs> <laughs> this will be a fun conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the New Year's episode, we talked about I want to code once per week now. And so as part of that, I decided to do no meeting Monday. So just my calendar has a 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. event every Monday recurring now. That's like, don't book a meeting with me unless there's like really no other time to book it. And um, are you enjoying that? Yeah, um, it's not the re- I, I struggle with where that day should go. The problem with Monday is like stuff may have built up over the weekend where like this week, I spent the first half of the day on non-programming, just like clearing out my inbox and stuff. But I did spend the second half of the day coding, and it was great. Um, an argument could be made, put this on Friday or something, where I should come into the day with like a week worth of stuff done. And I I don't know. You know what I mean by that? Yeah. Um, I have kind of two comments. One, on the thing we were just talking about, I think uh, there's a lot of argument for that should be, and you should be protecting that time for when you're the best. And I don't know mm-hmm. when you're the best at your at what you do. For me, it's the mornings and early on in the week. So it's almost like move the email back if you can uh, or push it, push yeah. it to like an afternoon thing. I don't be, think I have a clear thing like like the time I'm the best is if I just woke up from a nap and chugged a Dr. Pepper. That's when I'm best, but like <laughs> I don't nap most days. Well, don't, so. don't do email after that. Yeah, do I, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the other thing I wanted to mention was I wonder if you're kind of condensing your job into four days per week. And I'm wondering if that's contributing to some of your busyness. Hmm. Yeah, that could. Be. I mean, to be clear, it's not like I wasn't coding before. It's just that I didn't set aside time for it. But that that's an interesting point. I'll have to I'll, I'll just try to observe myself and make adjustments as I need to. Yeah, and there may just be a breaking in period as as the rest the world around you adjusts to mm-hmm. this constraint that you set on your week. Yeah, I've done this before and it it worked pretty well. I forget why I stopped, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about this. Anything um, else? And then the final thing here is um, we uh, maybe three episodes ago or something like that we talked about onboarding a new hire and we talked a lot about setting expectations and reducing their stress and talking about trust a lot because that's one of the core pillars here so he started yesterday uh and i didn't one thing i want to just meta comment about this podcast we in every episode go into great depth on the topic in reality what i actually apply is like skimming the surface from everything we talked about so in case people are listening and are like i have to go this sounds like a month worth of work for every episode. It's not actually. It's like I just took little bits and pieces of it and applied it. But we basically had a 30-minute meeting with this new hire his first day. And I I wrote up a two-page document that was like, here's what to expect for your first few months here. The first page is related to your job. The second page is related to the company in general. Um, and I think it, it did exactly what it needed to. Like, I'm not going to make any other changes this round. I think there's more room for improvement, but just that 30 minute meeting and that two page document, I think made a huge difference. How are you measuring whether it made a difference or not? Like, wh- why do you say that? I mean, 
with one person, you can't really take a data-driven approach to evaluating it. But uh, the main point of it was like, don't be stressed out. Like in this in this thirty-minute meeting, it was just like the first three days we're going to start training because we have to do something. You're going to forget it all. Just right now, don't even pretend you're going to remember anything from your first few days. And he was just kind of like, oh, like, great. <laughs> like, you could just see kind of a little bit of 10. And he said this to us. Now, you never know someone who, you know, you just hired, like, they're they're not going to be like, fuck you. Like, this is stupid. But it really seemed like it took a little pressure off and de-stressed the situation. And he said this without me really prompting too much. He was like, at my last job when I started it, you know, I had a, a week or two of training and they just threw me to the wolves and it was really stressful. It's great knowing three, I have a three month roadmap here and I've got all that time to get this stuff figured out before really anything's expected of me. So it was, it was great, I think. So like shoulders dropped just mm-hmm. at peace. Um, and is I, I'm very interested, this may not be a topic for today, but I'm very interested if, is it he or she? He. If he asks more questions, because you mentioned at the last episode, you don't get a ton of questions in that first couple of weeks. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if this has any effect on the num- like how m- more com- much more comfortable he is being dumb. Yeah. I'm not sure I'm going to get a great sense of that because he's quite a bit more like mature, I would say. like He's had other jobs and stuff, whereas a lot of the people we hire are entry level. So we don't have an apples to apples comparison, but I'll, I'll try to keep an eye on that. Cool. All right. Well, you want to jump into the topic? Yes. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is basically, I don't even know if I have the language to describe this correctly yet, but something like how to build a financial model for a startup. Um, the context here is, as I often say, like, Rick, you're you're more knowledgeable about businessy stuff than I am. Um, my background is product design, technical I've only really learned business concepts that I've needed to. And because I run such a simple business, it's bootstrapped. So never raise any money, never deal with investors, don't have a board of directors, none of that stuff. I basically don't know anything about finance or accounting. My, my dad is going to kick me because he tells me to stop saying that because he's an accounting professor. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't know certainly as much as you or as much as a lot of people. And if you read startup advice out there, people talk a lot about financial models and projecting stuff. And I've just never done any of that. And it's been fine. But I'm interested in discussing partially for my benefit and in case anyone's listening, like what might a startup do? Well, first of all, what is a financial model? What are the problems it's supposed to solve? And then like, how, what would a very, very basic version of this be um, that that would help a startup that isn't, you know, this giant high growth unicorn, but something more like what we're doing? Yeah, and I my bet is that you're probably doing a lot of the things that a financial model is uh, used to accomplish mm-hmm. uh, without knowing it and realizing it. And um, so I'm, I, I'd be interested at the end of this episode if if you're going, oh, I'm actually doing more of this than I thought I was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we should probably before we go into too much more context, talk about what a financial model is, and then maybe we can dive into specifically what you're doing um, mm-hmm. after that. Sounds good. Um, so, I mean, I would love to know how, we, how do you define a, well, I've never called this a financial model, but I, I have a spreadsheet that's called cash flow projections. I named it, I make a new one every year, but I, this name is from like six years ago and I've never updated it, but it's basically a spreadsheet that says it's got every, a column for every month, uh, going three years forward. I decided three years is about like the further out into the future, you try to project something, the worse the projection is. So I'm like, 
I'm going to cut it off there. Uh, and it's just like, if we keep growing roughly at our current rate and we spend at this rate, it's just saying each month, how much money will we make? And then we can use that to say, for example, at the end of the summer, we have some interns that were really good. How many jobs can we afford to offer to people, for example? But it's just really basic like that. Yeah. It sounds like it's a spreadsheet that takes into some some historicals um, about your business and then possibly some assumptions about the future. Mm -hmm. And then it helps you answer some important questions to your business. Yes. That's a financial model. Okay. Um, now, I suspect more sophisticated financial models can answer much, well, take into consideration a lot more past stuff, a lot more future projections, and answer a lot more questions. Mine is just like, will we have money at the end of the year? Yes or no, basically. Totally. So I, I the way I would define a financial model is something that takes in inputs and makes outputs around a financial uh, situation. Um, mm -hmm. So it basically is a mathematical or number-based representation of a, a business situation for purposes of this conversation. A financial model could model how the business works at the macro, uh, or it could be applied to a specific team or mi micro situation like um, how to build an inside sales team for a specific product. So um, all, I mean, all it is at the end of the day is taking into account what you know to be true based on history. And if you're just starting out, that might be zero. Like you might not know anything. Right. Um, and, what, and then what you believe to be true about the future. Um, and then sometimes there's some things that you know to be true about the future. Um, yeah, not, you might or, have or, commitments and contracts signed and stuff like ex that. Exactly. And then using that information to project what certain uh, sit situations might look like in the future. And a lot of times metrics evolve out of that uh, that you use to summarize that situation. Okay. So it sounds like there's not like one format or one, like one thing this is for. It can be, it's basically just a spreadsheet to answer questions. What are, I, I've given one type of question. I assume it's pretty common. Like, will I have money at the end of the year? The next level up is, can I afford to buy this thing or hire this person? What are some other, I know you've been hired by other, like, like as a consulting gigs and stuff to build these models for people. What are some other like questions that a startup to last type startup might be, maybe should ask, but isn't? Well, I think that's, that's where I kind of ran into a, an interesting problem preparing for this. Most of my work on financial models, I would say hundred percent of my work on financial models with the exception of my own recent work with Leg Up Ventures has been for a venture-backed company or a company that is seeking venture capital. And so like if you type in financial model into Google, I would bet that 99% of the results are geared towards building a financial model so that you can raise money. Um, so I come into it with that perspective. Uh, it's interesting though that a lot of the habits I built around financial modeling uh, at my previous company, and then also for some of the consulting clients I've helped, I apply to my own company, which I hope to be a startup less company. I don't have plans to raise money, but I have a financial model. Um, and it's very simple, but it, um, it, it creates a kind of a, one of the reasons I like it is it forces some reflection, some systemized reflection on the business, uh, on a numbers basis. Um, and so like, I guess, uh, one way I'm, one reason to, to, to build a financial model as a startup last company is sort of to force yourself to analyze the business um, and the decisions that you're making and the assumptions that you're making those decisions on 
uh, on a regular basis um, to sort of uh, try to pull out your biases. Yeah. So let me, uh, there are a few things you said there that I want to just kind of comment on. One, you kind of mentioned that a lot of these are for companies that raise money. And I, my understanding is there's two big reasons why finances get a lot more difficult for companies that raise money from investors. One is uh, a lot of this modeling is about trust or not trust, but it's about saying like, I'm making a bunch of claims about the business and you want to somewhat validate that they're reasonable. I mean, who knows what the future holds, but if you're doing it by yourself, you just trust yourself. You know you're not lying to yourself. But if you're talking to investors and you're like, I think that the business can do X, Y, Z, they're going to want to see some numbers behind it. So a lot of financial models are just about presenting what you already know to someone else. And it's probably not worth that type of work for a solo or bootstrapped company. Do you agree with that? I, I don't agree at all. And in fact, um, I think uh, I think a lot of the startup the, the startup financial models out there provide a framework uh, that is the common methodology for a financial model to raise money from a Series A company, a Series A venture fu- fund. Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, like wh- whether you want to raise money, whether you want to get you know, hire employees, whether you want to uh, be on the same page with your co-founder, the, the same, like at the end of the day, you need to know your business and you need to know what? See, I don't think I, I don't think that's true. We're, sorry. Of course, you need to know your business. So you need, yeah, you need to know your business. Whether you're a solo entrepreneur, whether you're talking to a co-founder, whether you're trying to raise money, and a financial model forces you to take the, you know, it, to the best of your ability, take that out of your head and put it on paper, and just the process of doing that, I think, is ninety percent of the value to your business, because you can then look at it and reflect on it, and cha- and if you do it, if you do it right. You have a financial model that that actually, you know, says answers questions. It should mm-hmm. lead to some iteration that that maybe you couldn't have done in your head as as well. So to be clear on what I'm saying, though, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a financial model if you're bootstrapped. I'm saying it should probably be different. Um, so, so for for example, there are a lot of metrics that startups track that are very valuable in figuring out what your company is worth and completely worthless in terms of informing how you should act. And if if you're a bootstrapped founder, you should probably only really care about things that can change your actions. The value doesn't matter. So I'm just saying there's like a lot of work out there. If you read Startup Advice, it looks like there's this whole universe of work you have to do. And a lot of it is specifically to get investors on the same page that you're already on. I'm not saying you shouldn't do any of the work. Yeah, I guess um, th- there's there's a question that I think we're talking about, which is why should you have a financial model? And then there's what should your financial model include? I think those are two different questions. Um, why should you have a financial model? You should have a financial model so that you know you can better understand what drives your business. You can better understand what risks you face. You can collaborate with others on the mathematics of your business if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to, you can show it to third-party investors and potentially raise money. These are all reasons why you should build a financial model. I don't. Th- I don't. Th- you know. Think that. I think a, a financial model is a good practice purely for the practice of the reflection. Regardless, now what should be in a financial model? This is where I think we're totally on the same page, which is um, you don't just go build a financial model based on what everyone else is building. I, I am an advocate for building a financial model from scratch every time you do it. 
um, you know, starting with what questions do you need to answer about your business uh, mm-hmm. in order to to operate it, and then let it expand naturally from there. There's a lot of you know, you could if you if you read ten articles on financial models, there's probably templates that they link, link to. Each of those templates is going to have thirty different things that they recommend. You add them all up, you probably got 150 different things that you need to do. There's probably ten of those that really matter to you right now, or none at all. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And then, real quick, the other thing I just want to mention. I think finances get a lot more complicated if you're sitting on a big pile of money that you got all at once from investors. Um, you have to say, okay, I've got a million dollars in the bank. I It has to get me to the next round of fundraising. I have to figure out how to spend it in such a way. If you're instead bootstrapping and you're just like, money's coming in, money's going out, it's a lot more like a an individual's personal finances at that point. You still need some understanding of what's happening, but it can be a lot simpler. So that's another reason why I think if you're intimidated by looking at this stuff as I was and still am, um, there's hope. It's not, it doesn't need to be that complicated if you're not raising money. Yeah. And I, I guess, uh, um, it's, it's, it doesn't need to be complex, but it does need to be meet the, de- it does need to have historicals. It does need to have assumptions. It does need um, to have inputs. Inputs. I don't think the word need is true there. Like I did not have any financial model for the first few years and it was totally fine. I think you're okay. So, um, I think you associate financial model with spreadsheet. Um, a financial model doesn't have to be in a spreadsheet. We often see it in a spreadsheet. So a financial model might be in your head. It could be written on a piece of paper. It's inputs, outputs, well, and the future. Okay. Yes. You should have thoughts if you're a founder of a company. But what I'm saying is like, even if you don't do any of this intentionally, which I didn't, it matters you, a well, lot you know, more. Well, let's back up. I totally mm-hmm. challenge that. You never said, hmm... I assume that if I build a CRM, mm-hmm. people will sign up for it and pay me money. You never went through that with your brother before you started this company? Well, I'm. if that's what a financial model means- That's then all a financial the, model is. I, then this episode contains the entire scope of the universe. Let's, listen, let's get a listen, little more specific I here. think you, you just got a little ranty on- um, on how financial models don't need to be complex, and uh-huh. and and to with the goal of the listener, um, hopefully not feeling like this is unapproachable, mm-hmm. right? I'm trying to make it more approachable here. All it is is a it, you could write it down on a piece of paper. It's you know, hey, I here's what I know today, and based on what I uh, know today plus what I think will happen tomorrow, here's what I think the future looks like for my business. You can do that on a piece of paper. You can do it in your head. You can do it in a Google Doc. You can, you know, I recommend doing it in a spreadsheet because there's automation involved uh, yeah. that can save you a lot of time. But at the end of the day, like that is the exercise. Okay, that's sure. a financial. Model. I, I think we're on the same page here. What I'm saying, well, a, I literally didn't do that. We didn't do anything like where might we get. We actually set our pricing at ten dollars. Like we literally were just like, ah, ten dollars seems like a round number. You made an so, assumption. Okay. But what I'm really getting at is there's a lot of advice out there, including some you might hear today, we might talk about, that applies to companies with more sophisticated needs. Um, in particular, if you have a lot of money you raise from founder from investors, it dramatically complicates the financial requirements of the business. Well, let's talk Do about you agree that. With that. Yeah, let's talk about why that is. And it should add clarity as to why I think at the end of the day, you don't need to do a lot of these things because you don't have venture capitalists. So um, in order for someone to give you money, oftentimes they are going to need to understand your business some way way similar to you so that they can make their own 
financial model, right? Yeah, that's the so, first point I was making earlier, right? Yeah. So, so, so like when you're an investor, um, you will never know the business like the CEO or the founder that's raising money, but you do need to make your own assumptions about how, the, like, you're, if I'm going to give this this company five million dollars, that's an expense on my on my model, right? And I have some assumptions around how this business will perform. And the, actually, investors they will actually build their own model, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, when they put money in to project what their returns will be. And the financial the questions that they ask you, um, oftentimes during fundraising, you don't know off the top of your head. You need uh, a, a calculation, uh, you know, that that isn't something you can do on a on the back of a piece of paper real quick to answer that question. And that's a lot of the recommendations out there. Are, are are associated with what the common questions are that that investors will ask and by designing financial models in certain ways you can have those answers ready um, when the investors ask if you don't ever get, aren't ever going to get asked that question um, if you're not ever going to raise money you may not need to be answering that question yeah I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here so we can move on after this but I just to clarify that was the first point I was making was, one reason they're more complicated is because you have to communicate it to somebody else whereas you versus the model you have in your head. The other one is setting aside communicating it to them. Having a pile of money is very hard to deal. Like once you get the money from them, you have to do projections on how quick will like I run out of this money. Whereas in the early days, if you don't raise money, you have no money to begin with and you don't have any model, anything to model in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I always like asking the question: What if? What if I had a million dollars in the bank? What would that do? I mean, what if? You know, what if I I spent the money this way? No matter whether it was a, a dollar or a five million dollars, I I don't know that there's massive complexity increased on in a model just because there's more money on the table. But I accept that. No, no, that no it's could, not about yeah. more money. It's about there's a very big difference between I'm getting money each month and spending it each month. Versus I'm getting a bunch of money all at once. I'm not making any and I have to manage my spend. Everybody has their personal financial model. Everybody knows this already. Everybody's like, I get paid $5,000 a month. My expenses are whatever. Like it's personal (laughs) finance. To some extent, yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So I I guess I I, I don't really quite understand what we're noodling on here. Um, What what I'm hearing is you're adding uh, like, listen, at the end of the day, money coming in, uh, in a month could come from a number of different different sources in your financial model. It could come from customers. It could come from your own funds. It could come from a big sale you just made. It could come from funding. And when you have money in the bank account, you're going to want to project out what what you do with that money and what that what you do with that money turns into in terms of additional money. Mm-hmm. I, the mechanics are the same for a financial model, whether that number is five million at once or a hundred dollars uh, a month. The mechanics. Of I like I wildly disagree, but I think we've both given our points yeah, here. So yeah. let's move on. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about, well, I don't know what you want to go into next. One thing I'm interested in doing, we've got about 20 minutes left here is like, can we talk about what I'm doing and maybe what else I could get out of this? Um, yeah. So I guess um, I would ask the question, why do you like, what are the different, why do you have a financial model? Why did you start putting it into uh cash um and mm-hmm. why did you put start putting it into a spreadsheet why did why have you made it more complex over time yeah so in the early days kind of similar to what i was just saying that like if you're just making money and spending it month to month so our our business i should say is 
very, very reliable recurring revenue. It's $10 per user per month. We've never, ever gone down in terms of how many users we have. So our growth is variable. Some months we grow a lot more than others, but it's always like a slow slope up and to the right in terms of revenue because it recurs every month, right? So in the early days, Bracken and I just paid ourselves whatever we could afford to pay ourselves. And there was really no point in modeling any, or by some definition, we were modeling it, but like, there's no point in having a sophisticated model because it's like, like I was saying earlier, I'm of the opinion, I don't want to do any kind of data analytics, financial type work if I can't take action off of it. If it doesn't change my behavior, I just don't even want to waste my time on it. So in the early days, it, there was no impact. The real impetus for getting a little more sophisticated was now it's time to hire people. Bracken and I are both comfortable, or we were at the time anyway, with our incomes going up and down and like whatever it is is what it is. You can't hire someone and be like, well, we'll pay you if we can afford to, but otherwise we won't. <laughs> you know, So that was really where we started saying we need to get a handle on this and know if we're going to hire someone, we actually need to be able to pay them. It's interesting. Yeah. You and Bracken had such trust in each other that you didn't have to worry about the future. You just said like, Hey, if something goes wrong, we'll talk about it. And we'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting. Um, when I, when, when, when Sable and I were first coming together as a couple, we, we weren't born, you know, two years, th- three years apart. Where are you guys? Yeah. Three. You spent your whole life together. Mm-hmm. Sable and I have known each other for a few years. We're coming together. We had, to, we actually used a spreadsheet to get on the same page. Um, but you didn't have that problem because you you knew your co-founder real well. That might not apply in a situation where two co-founders are coming together who are, have met each other over the last year and need to get on the same page. Yeah, it it certainly might not apply. And and I, I would definitely recommend people put more, even, even Brack and I probably should have put, like to, to put this in perspective of how unprepared we were, in a given month, we might have ended up like, oh, there's $3,000. H- how much do you want and how much should I? T-? And like most months I took a little bit more because- I think he he had another job that was full time and I only had a part time. There was like no system behind it all. But like, yeah, you probably should have more of a system than we did. But still, co-founders are taking on a level of risk that you don't want to impart on employees. And there's different types of expenses, right? There's if you're like, I'm trying to decide if I can buy a new computer. You can just be like, do I have the money in the bank as soon as I do buy it? And that the, the consequences of the decision are over immediately. But if you're like, I'm going to hire somebody, I mean, some people are comfortable just being like, well, I'll fire them tomorrow, but I'm not. Uh, you you really want to have not just an understanding that I can pay them next month, but that for years to come, I can pay them, I can give them the raises they're going to deserve and so on. So a trigger point was bringing on someone who you who you knew um, wasn't willing to accept the same risks of, uh, of, of lack of cash flow yeah. in the future that you and Bracken were. Yep. Yeah. Um, And then I'd say another inflection point here is, so then we started hiring interns and gave them full-time offers. But the way this works is you get the intern for one summer, they go back to school their senior year, and then graduate the following summer. So it's not just, can we afford them now, but it's a year from now, will we have the money and how many people can we afford to hire? So it kind of got incrementally more complicated. What I really like about what, what you're going through is it's a series of questions that you had um, can we afford an employee and not have to fire them? That was the first question that started you on the the, the more sophisticated, complex financial model with a Google spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And then you st- you said, okay, well, once you're in there, you started asking some other questions. Um, and 
I don't know, like I, when, when, so that's really how a financial model, in my opinion, uh, should develop. It should start with some basic questions that you need to answer, no more, no less. <laughs> and then as you start to answer those questions, maybe those, those questions become less important and you get rid of them. Um, and you and you, and as you learn, you add more questions and, uh, the financial, ultimately a really good financial model is a super simple one. Um, because, uh, it's answering the, let's just call it the 10 to 15 most important questions about your business as it relates to the future. Once a financial model uh, gets more complex than that, I, I'm a fan of like creating a whole separate model for answering those questions. Okay. So right off the bat, I can give one, like one of my takeaways from this is going to be, I have organically ended up in a world where at, at least with some effectiveness, I have a financial model that's doing what it's supposed to do, but I've never written down what are those questions that it's supposed to answer. That's a pretty straightforward thing that I can do right now. And A, I can look at those questions and say, is there obvious stuff that it's not answering? That'll give me some ideas. And B, as things go on, I can continue saying, does it still answer this question? If I make this tweak, am I eliminating that? So I think that's a pretty clear thing that I can take away from this. Totally. And the other, a couple other considerations about financial models, and I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead here. Um, but, uh, I, I think output one, one thing I think a lot of people don't take time to consider is the outputs of a, of a financial model are only as good as your inputs. So if you're putting information into a model, that's where your model starts. And if you're, if you've got bad historicals, if you've got, um, bad data from a mm -hmm. source like QuickBooks, no model is going to fix that. So you've got yeah. to really have good data practices if you're going to put data into the model. And uh, and so, you know, I I, I would if, if you have bad data at your company, I generally recommend don't worrying about a model fix the data first because you're mm -hmm. probably doing calculations in your head that are just fine to account for those the bad data. Yeah, and we talked about uh, just during maybe a couple two three weeks ago during one of the intros of one of these episodes, I mentioned I realized. We had this expense that I increased every month uh, by 3% because I made this at a time where that that's the rate that it was growing. And that compounds to like significant growth of this expense over time. And I just looked at it this year and realized, so what I do is at, at every like end of December, or early January, I redo this and I just go through every major expense and I say, I like last year it started at $3,000 and I projected it would end at 5,000. It's actually at 4,500. So I'm going to set it for the next year to start at 4,500, and I need to lower the growth rate a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's kind of that's not exactly the data, but that's the type of thing here where I identified, oh, I had this growing at way too fast of a rate, and that was kind of ruining the model to some extent. Yep, that's Makes kind sense. of the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah, and and so one is that I would say that's more of an example of uh, of 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 playing with your assumptions in the model to make sure they make sense. So sort of okay. the way to fix those is to test your assumptions, stress test them to see if major modifications to them make sense in the long run. So like when you make, when you edit an assumption, you can, you, you can sort of play with it to see, Hey, how impactful is this on the, on the financial model? And if it's overly impactful relative to the assumption, you can maybe say, Hmm, something's, something's not quite right here. This is overly impacting the model and you can dive into that. What I'm really talking about is third-party sources. So if you're pulling data from like your financial system or Recurly or Stripe um, and you've got bad data in there, um, then that can really mess you up. Is that how you do that? Because I don't, I don't pull, pull data from any other. So I, like I, my inputs are basically 
uh, here's like the starting revenue, which yes, Stripe gives me, but also it's how many users do we have times 10? It's pretty easy in our case. Um, and then like, I, I don't, I think every other thing is sort of like an assumption more than I'm not pulling data from anywhere. I don't think. Interesting. So how many of your assumptions, uh, pull like, are, are like take an, like a number that's in the past, a historical and apply that mm -hmm. going forward. So th that's how everything works. I, I guess what I do is a hybrid. Maybe what I do is what, what I said just a second ago is I, every year I look, I compare what the model thought was going to happen with what happened. So every year I go through and compare my bookkeeping. I go into my bookkeeping software and I'm like, I thought the phone bill would be this. What was it actually? But then starting the next year, all I do is I'm just like, I'm going to get this starting point from the thing I just did. And then I'm going to, in most cases, sometimes it's like multiply it by the number of users if it's a per user pricing thing. Mostly it's just, I'm going to increase it by some percent every month based on what happened historically. Yeah. So let's differentiate between assumptions and historicals. Historicals are what you believe are fact in the past. Typically you pull historicals into your model from another source, whether it's Stripe, uh, a CRM, um, or a marketing automation platform. It could be visitors from Google, you know, from, from the stuff. Um, and you pull that in, then you make up assumptions. Um, you can look at how you can sort of look back at history and say, and look at ratios in the past to, to guide your assumptions. But typically, yeah, you pull across assumptions mm -hmm. on average versus trying to get super nitty gritty. Um, I'm not so worried about the assumption in this case, um, my point, I just want to make sure it's clear, is when you are pulling data from third-party systems into your model that are going to help you project the future, make sure you trust that data. Don't blindly trust it because a lot of, I've seen um, customer miscounts happen, revenue miscounts happen because the data in the system wasn't properly managed before it was imported. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Less of a problem early on. Uh, the other consideration um, I wanted to mention was... A lot of people get caught up in revenue, and if you t if you go um, search these financial uh, these financial model guides, most of them are focused assume an accrual accounting that, uh, schedule. So there's two types of accounting: accrual accounting and cash basis accounting. Well, that's the two major types of accounting. Cash basis basically means revenue is cash. So when you receive cash, you, that is revenue. Accrual is much more complicated, and uh, uh, you know makes it so that you recognize revenue at the time the service you deliver the service. So mm -hmm. there's a massive difference in your revenue in a month um, if you're cash basis um, and uh, you know if you're providing annual contracts, for example, because you might charge ten thousand dollars in a cash basis accounting. That ten thousand dollars would be ten thousand in revenue, but on accrual accounting, it'd be one twelfth of that. So um, your business is actually uniquely simple because you have monthly contracts um, on a month on a monthly fee on a per user basis. So it really flows up nicely, and and you won't see a whole lot of variance in your business on cash versus accrual accounting. But just recognize if you're out there searching on these financial model websites, most of them assume you're doing accrual accounting because that's what investors expect. That's generally accepted accounting principles. Gap. That's accrual accounting. Um, I, one thing to keep in mind is when you're running your business and especially a startup to last company, revenue is a matter of opinion. Three different people could look at your same uh, numbers and come up with three different revenue numbers, but they will all come to the same cash number. Cash is a fact. So I always like, 
when I'm doing the financial model, let's start with cash. And if you can model off of cash, even though all these other financial models out there are saying revenue, 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 focus on making cash right and you won't find yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I'll, I'll just add to that. You can also kind of set your business up to be simpler or to be more complex. So uh, I was just having a conversation with someone earlier uh, today where we were kind of talking about the merits of trying to collect a lot of your money as upfront annual payments. And there's a lot of pros and cons. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But like by because I haven't done that, I've never had to figure out how to conserve that money. It's like I can spend money right when it comes in because I know it's coming in again next month. So you can kind of put yourself in a position to need more or less sophisticated finances, I think. Absolutely. When you, when you take money in advance uh, for services performed in the future, you need a you 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 are increasing the requirements of your financial model. Yeah. So okay, I, I totally agree with that. Can I ask you the the main sticking point I think I have with all of this? And the earlier the company is, the more I am frustrated by it. At the end of the day, there are assumptions that go into this that are probably wrong, um, especially related to your growth. You know, you see all these startups that are like, oh, we're going to be a billion dollar company in five years because look at these projections, and it's, it's just like total nonsense. They just made up numbers. Do you? I realize this is a super vague question, but one of the things I struggle with is I have no idea what our growth is going to be in the future. And so I have no, like, I can set a baseline that we're not going to shrink and say, well, how much money do I have in that scenario? But I can make up any numbers I want and convince myself I can afford to hire this person. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's, there's, well, let me back up and just say, that no matter what financial model you have, if it's trying to predict the future, it's wrong. But it's so trying you know, to answer questions, right? Yeah, so it's wrong, right? And so you, you got to recognize that you're never if you're if you're so right, like I will give you money if you're right every time <laughs> about growing your business. I will give you money. Come raise money for me. Um, but that's that's hard. Part of of the exercise. Part of this is just the exercise of thinking through what needs to happen. Um, for your business to answer the question. Um, so, so part of like the benefit of financial modeling is just the process of modeling. That's why when, earlier when I was saying, I still do this for leg up, even though we were a hundred thousand dollar company, revenue company right now, like th th way less complex than anything I've, I've ever modeled before. But like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's useful for me because it, I go through these question answering scenarios. I mean, confidence, um, one, one thing to think is what's the confidence level you have in the assumption and think through, is this like a, I'm hundred percent confident to, I have no confidence. I think the higher, you don't want to make too many assumptions where you have low confidence on. Um, if you have a low confidence assumption, one thing you can do is take that assumption, pull it apart and then model out that assumption. What, what needs to happen? So you kind of like have, mm -hmm. if an assumption is like super critical to your business, and you don't have a lot of confidence around it, a lot of times that's a great reason to pull out another model <laughs> okay, and so, deep dive on that. So an example of that would be like my current model just has like top, like net user growth month over month, but it doesn't say where it came comes from. So if I wanted to get more specific on that, I could say, well, let's look at a different model that has churn, number of referrals, people are getting from ads. And then, I, you know, it's still probably wrong, but it's a little more informed, basically. Yeah, and that and that the purpose of that second model would be to project your net rev net revenue growth rate, so that you can plug it into your main model. Okay, and that's a great way of like increasing confidence is breaking down assumptions into their smaller parts. Yeah, 
what people do though is they they make the mistake of trying to do this all in one model. So <laughs> if you've seen a, seen a model that this is done, it's impossible for anyone to come in and help you with it. So there may be a point in time where you want to collaborate, Tyler, with some of your coworkers on pieces of your business. If you can keep your core one simple and then sort of pull out these separate ones to collaborate on different with different people around your company um, and keep it simple, easy for them to understand um, and follow along with, then it can add a lot of uh, collaboration opportunity and take some you know stress off your back. I've probably done this without having the language behind it. Like in a very simple way, I have a line item that's like, what's Alex's marketing budget? And then separately, I go into Alex and I'm like, okay, let's put a spreadsheet together that figures out how much money you're going to spend this year. But we don't do, we don't break that whole thing down into the, in the main model. That's kind of what you're talking about. Totally. And where, where I think you want to get is Alex, make an argument for me why you want more money. Uh, because he, he's thinking through like, if I had, uh, this amount of money, like here, here's what I could do with it. Um, and he's sort of doing his own model. What, what I find is like a, a lot of people get, I'm a stickler for formatting and stuff like that in financial models, but I don't think that's very useful as you get down into these smaller things. I think making it more of a, an exercise and not worry about how it looks, but more about the activity and mm-hmm. the exercise. Um, I think that that becomes very useful. Okay, cool. Did we answer um, your like? I know we answered what is a financial model and and some of the considerations. What what? Yeah. What have you gotten out of this? Well, yeah. So I came in here expecting like I have no idea what's going to happen here because it's such a big topic, and I don't even exactly have a problem. One of my questions was, do I have a problem? And I think the answer to that is no. I think that's one thing I got out of this is the the model has advanced over time to answer the questions that come up and no new questions have arisen over the last couple of years. And so I've, I've basically been looking at it, like feeling some kind of imposter syndrome. Like I'm a $2.6 million ARR company. I should have a better model. And, and what you've helped me get a little confidence on is I have questions I need to answer. They're getting answered with reasonable confidence. I don't need to invent problems that aren't there. Totally. Um, now, if you, I, I mean, can I ask you one question? What is your cadence for updating the financial model? Do you review it regularly or do you sort of do it when you need to? I look at it all the time, um, mul- multiple, because it's kind of a cash flow thing. It's it's more than just modeling out the future. It's also at the, at like, at the very least every single month. But I, one thing I didn't mention, actually, I should say, uh, there's a model that's saying, what do I expect to happen? And I don't change that all year, but I have other lines in the same spreadsheet that's like, what did happen? And then there's a section that compares those two and it's like, how far off was I? So last year, the model was $60,000 too conservative. It thought we were going to end up with $60,000 less than we did. And so I saw that throughout the year and I did. I didn't adjust the model because by adjusting it, it kind of like lies about the, the ways I was wrong, but I did go throughout the year saying I'm expecting a little more cash and I'm going to go spend it. You know, that's cool. Um, the one thing that you might want to add in between those two lines is an updated forecast for this of the year, taking into account what actually happened mm-hmm. um, in in the most recent month. That way, you're getting a more accurate um, end of year forecast and each month fo- forecast. Yeah, that's a fair point. One thing that I like a little gotcha that I might warn people about if they're doing this for the first time. Um, 
Different months. So in my opinion, with most financial stuff with the SaaS business, the main influencer over how much money you make or anything like that is what day of the week it is. You, For example, you don't get paid on weekends. Your customers might get their credit cards charged, but the bank, you don't get the cash. Um, So there's a lot of variance from month to month based on did that month have four weekends or five five sets of weekends. So I I don't want to like overcorrect to when it's wrong if that makes sense because it's often made up the next month. So anyway, I, that's not to disagree with you, but like you can mm-hmm. like go overboard on being like, oh, I was supposed to gain ten thousand dollars this month and I lost five thousand. That literally might just be because there was an extra Saturday that month. Totally. Yeah. And each time. So yeah, real quickly on recommendations for a cadence. So typically you have a cadence. It sounds like it's monthly at the very least. Um, During that cadence, a good exercise in is is fill in historicals, compare that to what you thought would happen, and then adjust assumptions going forward based on your learning. Don't just like say, oh, what happened this month is going to happen next month. Yeah. You really want to think about, okay, what didn't hold? Why didn't it hold? And really dive into reflecting on the underlying uh, drivers behind that assumption and then place a new assumption in. That exercise right there leads to so much learning about your business. And that's why I personally have a financial model that I update every, um, I do it every week. uh, Every week. Yeah. What, what data, what, I I realize I have to go pretty soon here, but like, what, what are you updating every week? Because every month it's easy to say, like, well, I don't know. What's my bank account? I guess you could do that every week, but is that what you're doing? You're just looking at your bank account and seeing what it looks like, and yeah. So um, I should have said every. I, I just say every week. I'm in mean, mm-hmm. every month. I do it every okay. month, and then um, every quarter I'll typically do some larger. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what do you call it? Deep dive, okay. um, and and do historicals. Um, what I do though is I I make sure I go through all my transactions and categorize them. That's on a weekly basis. Um, I make sure that. If I if I'm working on a specific assumption, like for example, one of my goals right now is increasing subscribers at ricklinquist.com. That, for example, it's not in my financial model, but it is somewhat of a model. Mm-hmm. Um, I do update that and reflect on whether or not that's going and think, you know, I assumed that this was going to increase, you know, by 50% this month. It's only up 40%. Why is that? What do I need to change? That kind of thing. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Well, thank you. This was helpful. I realized we were all over the place. I, I kind of expected that. And uh, listener, I think we maybe dove a little too deep into that disagreement earlier. So apologies, but uh, that's how conversations go sometimes. Um, well, sometimes you just got to be wrong, Tyler. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, you want to sign us off here? Or do you have any other thoughts? Yeah. Real quickly, any takeaways before I sign us off? I, the biggest one for me, I, I already kind of said this, but Figure out what questions you have to ask and figure out how to answer them. And actually, the other one, this is all very squishy, wishy-washy stuff, but you gave me permission to just do whatever the fuck I want. Um, I think I I bet there are a lot of people out there in my shoes where I feel like there's this big gap in my knowledge and what I'm doing seems to be working, but I, I just made it up and it doesn't seem theoretically pure. And I'm like, do people who went to business school have some magical understanding of this that I don't? And what I think you you said is like, all business models are different. You build them from the ground up. There's not a right or wrong thing to do as long as you're answering your questions, which I think most people capable of starting a company are also capable of making a spreadsheet that answers questions for them. Absolutely. So it's really just a confidence thing, I think. Totally. And I would say that this these rules only apply if you don't have 
bankers that you're you know raising money from or third parties your your investors that you're raising money from the the rules change completely and you're going to have to answer questions that maybe you aren't interested in but your investor is and that's where these financial models get much more complicated yeah yeah cool cool well, I'll sign us off. Uh, so everyone, thank you for listening. You can join the conversation on this topic and review past topics by visiting startuptolast.com. If you have questions, contact us via the website or on Twitter. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas. Um, also, if you have a minute and are willing to, please uh, leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. And if you leave a comment, um, we'd love to see it. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see you next week, Tyler. All right. See you then.